Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Tangredome episode 11. I'm your host, Iggy. And this is going to be a mailbag episode in which I'm going to be answering the questions that have been piling up and up and up in our Discord server, which you can join for as little as $5 per month, which uh, naturally also gives you access to all the exclusive content that we've been putting up on our Patreon, things like alternate commentary tracks, resume evaluations, exclusive fight breakdowns, uh... Also, Ed has started a new series called uh, Bad Calls. If you've uh, if you've been following MMA for any number of years, uh, I, I'm pretty sure you at this point you're already well acquainted with the fact that uh, MMA judging is frankly quite terrible. And so, our our editor in chief at Gallo is there to started this uh, series to dispute decisions that uh, can be considered questionable, and uh, he intends to set the record the record straight on uh, high-profile robberies. He breaks down the fights round by round and gives context on the official scoring criteria as they are outlined in the unified rules of MMA. So certainly go and check that one out. And so let's not waste any time here and jump, jump uh, straight in. So the first question is uh, from Sam. Uh, it has to do with Mongolian wrestling, uh, history, culture, regional styles, traditions, current states, etc., etc. It's uh, one of the first questions I've received uh, on a server, and, it's been, and it's, it's been marinating for a long time, because first I wanted to do a history episode that uh, has to do, uh, that um, covers nothing but Mongolian wrestling, but then I figured it's going to take a very... <laughs> The research, the amount of research I'm going to, I'm going to need to do for that one is pretty much it's uh, is it's pretty astounding. <laughs> it's going to take a very long time for me to chew my way through that. So instead, I'm just going to direct you to um, some sources that I believe have done a pretty good job covering it. Uh, f- one was. Uh, the Hero with a Thousand Holds podcast, uh, the episode called A Phone Call to the Inner Mongolian Steppe, which has to do with, uh, uh, with the Inner Mongolian style of wrestling, covers it fairly extensively in its current state as well. So check that one out and read the article by Chris Masari called Boch Wrestling and the Cultural Genocide in Inner Mongolia. For some cultural context, it's a. I, I gotta warn. I have to warn you. It's a pretty, pretty harrowing read. But I mean, uh, there's no two ways about it. Uh, the Mongolian culture. Mongolian culture is currently undergoing. It's uh, in a pretty sorry state as of now between Russia and uh, China, and the p- political pressures experienced by Outer Mongolia as well, despite being independent. So if this topic gets uh, a touch political, then I'm sorry, you're just going to have to bear with me. But I mean, that's the thing. That's Tengridome. That's the fight site. We never shy away from some uh, hefty topics. So Mongolian wrestling, like uh, as an entity overall, uh, can be traced back about 7,000 years, give or take, according to various historical sources. Uh, it's uh, a, 
a, it's a sport comparable to many traditional sports across the world and that it's very ancient and has developed uh, some particular quirks and uh, some and regional variations. Because naturally, uh, Mongolian peoples, if you didn't know, uh, we, we aren't really a monolithic entity. We consist of many different tribes and many different peoples. Uh, there's a reason why Mongolic peoples is a term, and uh, there's been many, uh, there's been a lot of political disputes on uh, the actual unity of the Mongols. So uh, what can be considered, what what uh, ethnicity can be considered Mongolian, and what ethnicity can uh, is uh, exempt from being considered that. For example, the Tuvans. The Tuvans are a Turkic people who nonetheless have been interacting with uh, the various Mongolian tribes for so long that uh, culturally they're essentially indistinguishable from Mongols. And yet, despite that, linguistically, their language is very distinct. It's uh, a Turkic language. And so while there may be a significant overlap in the lexicology of that language, it's still its structure and uh, the way... It functions functions is uh, still uh, distinct enough to be considered uh, its own thing. Same with uh, the Buryat language, which is, despite being Mongolic, uh, it's more of a case of, like, compare Slavic languages, uh, Russian versus Belarusian or Russian versus Ukrainian. And uh, uh, if you internalize that difference, then you're halfway there. Naturally, there's... Uh, even that is pretty much disputed amongst the linguistic community, but a lot of it is dictated by... A lot of it is unfortunately dictated by politics. Uh, the Mongolian government would like to be all tangenially, even tangenially related peoples to be considered Mongolian, because that was the case during the uh, Mongolian Empire days, during the Empire days, and uh, the Chinese government would like to uh, keep the Mongolian influence on the culture uh, to a minimum. <laughs> it enga it, what, what it engages in it can be considered nothing less than historical revisionism, really. Same as Russia. Russia doesn't want to be considered to be influenced by any outside entity. Even the commonly accepted Viking theory in that uh, Rurik and uh, his uh, Viking explorers uh, have uh, has set foot in uh, ancient Rus and in ancient Rus and um, established the Russian uh, the Russian uh, state in it in uh, in the medieval era that's uh, is um, uh, that that chafes a little bit with the Russian government as well but I mean uh, that's uh, that's just how stuff works <laughs> in, in the world especially with uh, polities that uh, prefer to be uh, prefer to remain ethnostates, quote-unquote, even if their actual history was way more multicultural, multicultural than that, uh, when you consider the historical facts. But anyway, <laughs> back to Mongolian wrestling. <laughs> uh, so, as I've said, it goes back 7,000 years ago. It's a traditional sport in, all, in pretty much all Mongolic states. Uh, pretty much all Mongolian states. Uh, the 
Mongolia, in Mongolia proper, quote unquote, in Outer Mongolia, the independent Mongolia, the country, uh, the predominant style is uh, the Holho Mongolian style. Or, as uh, as a Holho Mongolian would say, Halkh. And so the sport itself in, is called Undusniboch, which Boch uh, pretty much translates uh, to endurance. And the rules are fairly straightforward. Uh, you pretty much just have to force your opponent to touch the ground with three points of contact. Either three points of contact or his entire upper body, knee or elbow to the ground. Uh, meanwhile, in the Inner Mongolian version, any body part other than the feet touching the ground is, uh, is pretty much means you're lost. There are no weight classes, age limits or time limits all that stuff, and uh, so it's it's really, uh, there, there's like two variations, the uh, traditional uh, commoner variation where everyone just kind of uh, wrestles as a, as a pastime, as a hobby, uh, and so it's not uncommon to see things like, uh, for example, a child wrestling a grown man, but there is also a state-sponsored government, uh, government-sponsored variation where it's actually a career that you actively pursue. And normally, uh, well, uh, wrestling competitions are held all year round, but uh, usually the most prestigious ones are held during the Mongolian Nadam. And Nadam means game in English. Uh, it takes place uh, every summer. It's uh, Nadam is uh, it's a type of national festival uh, that is meant to commemorate uh, the foundation of... Uh, it's basically meant to celebrate being Mongolian, essentially. But usually, what it also it's also dedicated to celebrating the, uh, the year during which uh, Chinggis Khan took the throne and established uh, the, the great uh, Mongol Empire, the Yikh Mongol Uls in Holho Mongolian, or Yikh Mongol Uls, in Buryat Mongolian. Uh, Mongolian itself is not... Uh, Mongolian as a language itself, as I've as stated, is not a monolithic ent entity in any way, so bear with me if I'm going to provide multiple uh, variations on the same term. Uh, I know it's... Uh, I know it can be confusing, and as Mongolian is a pretty, pretty unique, pretty difficult language. So... So, in Nadam, there are three levels. There's the Sum, Nadam Wrestling, which is held in early July, uh, which is, uh, like, the smallest, the, the, the lowest qualifier level. Sum is, uh, is pretty much uh, just a district, Aimak. Uh, there's the second level, Aimak, Nadam Wrestling. And uh, Aimaks, uh, there are 21 Aimaks in Mongolia. And that's uh, it's a it's a provincial municipality of a sort, and so and then the final level, the first level is uh, the national Nadam wrestling, which is uh, which is the finals. Uh, either you qualify at the th well, usually how it works is that you qualify at different levels, and then you are qualified to enter the national competition. It's not like a straightforward progression. Uh, the 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 sum level is where usually is where the 
um, as is a previous the previously described child versus grown man competition takes place. Uh, it's mostly kind of uh, for like for fun <laughs> and not not uh, not that serious. There is also the Hamak uh, uh, Mongol wrestling competition that takes place between uh, all ethnic uh, Mongolians. Uh, it's um, it, it it's, uh, it's uh, changes place every year, if I'm not mistaken. It's uh, sometimes it takes place in Buretia, where I live. Sometimes it takes place in Kalmykia, um, in Altai, or in Mongolia, or Xinjiang. That's where people from all the national styles compete. Uh, to come back to the national styles for a bit. So, once again, as I've already said, there's the Ina Mongolian wrestling variant. Um, there's the Kholkha uh, Mongolian wrestling variant. And there's the Buret wrestling variant. Which is... The Buret wrestling is pretty much identical. Uh, so, uh, the only difference is that uh, it's called a bit differently. It's called Pukhobariodum. And... Uh, but otherwise, no distinction in uh, in the rule set or in the equipment the wrestlers use. And on equipment, uh, <laughs> one of our patrons compared Mongolian wrestling to slutty sambo. <laughs> he called it slutty sambo because uh, it's also a form of jacket wrestling. Uh, wrestlers wear trunks and a jacket and uh, the traditional Mongolian boot. Traditional Mongolian boots. And the jacket is open. It opens your uh, opens your chest because, according to a legend, uh, there was uh, a very very physically gifted uh, rebellious Mongolian princess called uh, Khotulun, and uh, Khotulun uh, frequently entered wrestling competitions. And her father said that uh, his daughter will not marry unless she gets defeated in the wrestling competition. Uh, there are two variants. One that says that she will not uh, get married, where she says that she will not get married un uh, unless someone defeats her. The classic uh, uh, Red Sonia, <laughs> the classic Red Sonia myth. And the other variant is that her father said that. And there's also uh, a variant where the most commonly accepted variant that she entered competitions dressed as a man, which uh, doesn't make much sense <laughs> when you think about it. I mean. <laughs> Given how uh, how exposed Mongolian wrestlers usually are, I mean, either she was pretty brawny, or uh, she competed with uh, pretty scrawny men. But regardless, uh, I think uh, the legend goes that uh, uh, finally, the, the the finally she stumbled upon uh, her match who actually managed to defeat her and revealed that she's a woman to the world by ripping open her jacket and revealing her breasts. And from then on, the jacket has been uh, made in such a way that it uh, reveals her chest, reveals your chest in order to confirm that you are not, in fact, a woman. I mean, it's all pretty much apocryphal. That's how myths usually are. That's how legends, legends are. So take that. I take that with a grain of salt, with a huge grain of salt, and I recommend you do the same. Because historically, uh, Mongolian re uh, female wrestlers have been competing at a fairly high level uh, in uh, styles as like judo or uh, freestyle wrestling or whatever. 
So in Buretia, the Naadam festival is, is uh, usually called Autargana. And Autargana refers to a type of um, plant that grows in uh, Siberia. It's usually associated with family, with uh, your cultural roots, your family roots. And that is why the most popular, the most... Um, the national song of uh, Buret Mongolians is usually considered, uh, well, Autargana. Uh, it's, it's a very beautiful song. I suggest you go and listen to that song. It's, uh, it says, it offers some insight into how uh, Mongolians usually think about themselves and the, uh, the picture of the world, the image of the world that Mongolians usually have in their head how they perceive things and how they... Oh, well, basically the value system of Buret Mongolians and Mongolians overall. This has been pretty rambly so far. <laughs> this is entirely unscripted. I'm just going through uh, the questions that I... through a list of questions that I've got prepared and uh, kind of listing things off the top of my head. So <laughs> I apologize in advance if this is going to be like a fairly... Uh, a, a pretty chaotic listen, a pretty rambly one. But, I mean, it's a podcast. That's how podcasts usually are. That's how podcasts usually are. Uh, the time limit thing, the the no time limit thing, uh, led to a creation of a type of um, second called the Sul, literally means fixer. Uh, so it's a a second is present. During both seconds are present during the entire wrestling match, and uh, their purpose there is to basically give warnings for inactivity to wrestlers and to kind of just uh, to kind of encourage them to con to create more action. And uh, if uh, action if the action stalls for for a little bit, then they they the souls are allowed to uh, settle on a fair 50-50 position from which uh, both wrestlers can then uh, work on uh, trying to secure a takedown or a throw or, well, just uh, cr well create a scramble, create action, basically. Create uh, <laughs> Kazushi. <laughs> Depending on the region, uh, the wrestlers start either separately, uh, sep either separated with no physical contact or, for example, in Oirat, Western Mongolian wrestling, they start the match in a fixed 50-50 uh, position. Also, uh, the Ujimchin and Kholunbuyur uh, styles in Inner Mongolia uh, usually do not permit leg attacks. Meanwhile, the Kholkha uh, variant and the Buret, Buret Mongolian variant not only allows, but uh, actually actively encourages uh, leg attacks, such as uh, uh, the uh, well, the usual wrestling attacks, then the high crotch, the double leg, the single leg, all that stuff. So naturally, I prefer <laughs> prefer that style. But uh, I mean, the Inner Mongolian style also can be pretty pretty interesting because there is no forced parterre, <laughs> as in, uh, for example, Greco. So usually, with the the souls present, usually it and uh, high octane, high volume, high. Uh, well, not high volume, high amplitude throws are usually more frequent, so it's pretty much, uh, pretty much more. It's uh, it's more fun to watch in essence. 
So the Oyerut style uh, defines a fall as being when the shoulder blades touch the ground. Uh, kind of like in freestyle or like uh, Turkish wrestling and all that stuff. Uh, in Kholumbayr uh, or in a Mongolian style, uh, also in Ordus or Alaksha and Shalbur, uh, uh, a fall is, uh, is, is considered such when any part of the body above the knee or ankle touches the ground. And uh, in Kholcha uh, uh, and Buret Mongolian styles, uh, you can touch the ground without losing it, losing the bout. You l- you lose the bout if you touch the ground with uh, three points of contact. So basically, your knee, your hand, and maybe your elbow, or your knee and both your hands, uh, and uh, other various combinations, kind of other similar combinations. The jacket is usually called zaduk. Uh, the the Outer Mongolian styles usually have it uh, made from cotton or wool. Uh, it's kind of like a heavy-duty type of jacket. It's fairly thick. It's also it also hugs your body fairly closely, so you don't you don't have uh, as much uh, uh, jacket manipulation as uh, as you get in some other jacket wrestling styles, for example, sambo. Uh, the Inner Mongolian zaduk is usually made from leather. Shuduk is uh, briefs, and uh, gutul is just the boots. Gutul actually pretty much just simply means boots in Mongolian. Uh, my my grandfather actually wears wears this type of boot a lot around the house. They're pretty comfy. They're pretty comfy, and uh, especially if you're an elderly person, they are very warm. So, uh, or if you have, if if you've got poor poor blood circulation, I recommend you get a pair of Mongolian boots or something similar. <laughs> One thing you may notice uh, you may notice Mongolian wrestlers frequently do before and after the bout is uh, the uh, in Buryat Mongolian it's called Borgode uh, Hatr I don't know what it's called in Hoha Mongolian uh, in Holcom Mongolian because I forgot, but uh, yeah, it's um, it's uh, it means eagle dance. It's uh, it's a dance that imitates either uh, a falcon or a phoenix or an eagle taking off. Uh, meanwhile, Inner Mongolia has uh, the a dance that uh, is supposed to be imitating uh, a lion or tiger. Uh, it's especially especially apparent in the. Ujimchin version, and um, uh, the Cholumbayur variant uh, has uh, 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 has a deer dance. It re- resembles a deer bounding. So really, uh, it's uh, it comes from the ancient shamanistic rituals. So imitating uh, an animal dancing or performing some sort of a, a posturing behavior. Uh, signifies well naturally signifies the usual things like strength triumph victory or that stuff uh it's uh, it kind of also serves a practical uh, uh practical purpose it also serves as a warm up and a cool down before and after the bout so it's both pretty and functional <laughs> i mean that's just that's just mongolian culture for you a lot of it uh, is like that i mean in the steps, in the frigid steps of Mongolia, there can be no waste. <laughs>
As for its history and growth, well, uh, I'm not as well versed as I would like to be in Mongolian wrestling, to my, to my endless shame. I mean, that's kind of common among Buret Mongolians because we've been colonized for what, 300 years already. So, a lot of the language has been forgotten, and a lot of the, a lot of our history has been forgotten. I, for example, I cannot read uh, the old Mongolian script at all. Uh, meanwhile, in Inner Mongolia, that's all they use. And so, Inner Mongolia is kind of a hotbed for cultural preservation, even more so than Outer Mongolia, despite all the, uh, despite the Chinese Communist, Communist uh, Party's efforts to the contrary. Um, but anyway, uh, I would provide a historical example of how Mongolian wrestling has been inextricably tied to the imperial court and the various uh, behind-the-scenes stuff that went around, the various behind-the-scenes intrigues that uh, defined the Mongolian co imperial court in its heyday. Uh, a common story, yeah, as outlined in the secret history of the Mongols, uh, called in Hoho uh, Mongolian Mongolian Nutstovche. Uh, meanwhile, in Beret Mongolian, it's it's called Mongol Nyusa Topshu. So, <laughs> to illustrate a bit of a difference between the dialects, and so uh, the comments, the the story goes as such: Belgude uh, was the son of Yesuge uh, and Sachigil. And uh, he was a, a half-brother to Chinggis Khan. He was considered a wise counselor and skilled diplomat and uh, was often relied upon uh, by Temujin as a, a bit of a confidant. And during a wrestling competition, during one of the Nadams, uh, Chinggis Khan pretty much used <laughs> Belgude as a political assassin. Uh, the wrestling match... Uh, took on uh, took place in Eastern Mongolia on the year of the monkey, that is uh, 1200 AD. And so the English translation goes uh, goes as such: One day, Chinggis Khan had uh, Boriboch and uh, Belgude wrestle each other. Boriboch belonged to the Churkin tribe. Formerly, Boriboch was able to hold on to Belgude. Belgude by one hand, drop him to the ground by one leg, and keep him immobile there on the ground. Boriboch was a nationally was a nationally famous wrestler. However, on this occasion, when Boriboch and Belgude were made to wrestle with each other, Boriboch fell on the ground despite being an undefeated champion. Belgude managed with great effort to press Boriboch down at the shoulder, and proceeded. To sit on his belt area. So basically he sat on his lower back. <laughs> kind of like in professional wrestling. <laughs> uh, he then glanced at uh, Chinggis Khan from the corner of his eye. Chinggis Khan bit his lower lip. Belgade understood the meaning of this. Held Buribach firmly. Jerked him at the chest and buttocks. And broke his back. Buribach in agony sat with his back broken. I never lost this match to Belgade. I fell purposefully to please the Khan out of fear, but now I have lost my life. Having said this, he died. 
Belgadeh broke his back, dragged him, and then left his body. The eldest of the seven sons of uh, Kabulhan was uh, Orhin Barhak. The second was uh, the the second eldest was Bartan Bater. Yasehe Bater, father of Chinggis uh, Khan, was his son. The third the third son was Hutukt Monhor. Buriboch was his son. Whenever Buriboch wrestled, he far outperformed the sons of Bartan Bater. He was close friends with the brave sons of Barhak. This was how the national wrestling champion Buri had his back broken by Belkadeh. So you see, the secret history of the Mongols frequently has these these kind of uh, on first glance uh, has these passages that come at first glance apropos of nothing that uh, outline the lineage of uh, the players involved. But this is actually extremely important because it gives you context for why the this uh, thing the, this this why the events have occurred in the way they occurred <laughs> um, it gives you a bit of political context behind uh, behind the, the the various decisions the uh, political players in during the imperial period make because as uh, we all know during the medieval era blood was everything and uh, during ancient history of humanity, that that's pretty much all that uh, really mattered in the end. And uh, the Mongols were no exception. If anything, it was uh, even more pronounced because, uh, well, the Mongols have pretty much been a tribal society for as long as I, as uh, Mongolian history can remember, as it uh, as it can record. So to give a bit of context for that. The secret history of the Mongols records an occurrence that happened uh, happened during some time during uh, the ascension of uh, Temujin and he, the uh, around the time of uh, the unification of tribes. Belgudeh and uh, Genghis Khan were involved in a horse thieving accident. He was slashed, and then Mongolian culture of the day drawing blood on because. Because the steps were considered sacred, because the Mongols were an animist society, a shamanist society, everything had its own spirit. Drawing blood on sacred ground, which is pretty much everywhere, is uh, considered both sacrilege and an insult to one's honor. That's why high-ranking political prisoners were usually uh, were usually executed by being wrapped in wool and then trampled by horses, so that uh, as little blood as possible were spilled on the ground. That's why that's why wars were such a such a uh, such it was a very much a spiritual endeavor as much as it was a political endeavor. Or if war was inevitable, uh, they would the the various Mongolian tribes would try to retroactively give it some kind of spiritual meaning as well to appease the gods to avoid to avoid. Well, pissing off the spirits. So what happened was, uh, uh, Belgadeh has been guarding his group's horses as they feasted with the Jerkin tribe in an attempt to gain their, su- their support against the Tatars. And um, when a Jerkin man had tried to steal one of his horses, Belgadeh gave chase. And uh, what sa- another Jerkin, Jerkin Buri Boch, that is Buri the wrestler, blocked Belgade's attempt to apprehend the thief. 
Velgade bared his chest in the traditional manner to issue a wrestling challenge. Instead of accepting challenge, the challenge, Bori drew his sword and slashed at Belgade. So that was the grave insult that uh, Bori Boch had, uh, uh, had inflicted upon Belgade, and that's why he's been assassinated uh, once uh, Chinggis Khan took the, tr- took the throne. And I mean, it's a common, it's a common theme uh, across uh, the entirety of Mongolian history, lots of revenge killings. Uh, Temujin's entire crusade, entire conquering crusade, has been pretty much uh, basically a revenge crusade. Uh, his family was gravely insulted by the betrayal, of, by the by the way the Tatars betrayed his own family line, the Borjigin, and so basically, <laughs> basically the the entire reason the Mongol Empire became as large as it was and. Uh, why he decided to unify the tribes was pretty much what he looked at the state he looked at the state of the mongolian tribes of the time and just kind of went i don't like this <laughs> that tribe piss, pissed me off that tribe committed a grave sin against my tribe back way back when this tribe poisoned my father this tribe does this thing which goes against the sacred um, mongol traditions and you have to understand uh in its state, in 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 its state, the Mongolian tribes didn't really pay much attention. Well, while they revered the Mongolian the the laws of the steppe, in order to survive, uh, frequently following the laws to the letter was impossible, and there really were no written laws. It was more like, uh, more like, more like spoken traditions unwritten traditions and more like it was more like customs more than anything and so Chinggis Khan made it his life's goal to give the Mongols an actual set of set of laws to follow and to set a and to create an institution that would ensure those laws are followed so that the empire may prosper which is funny because uh, Chinggis Khan has been uh, Chinggis Khan himself was illiterate, and yet he was. In, that's why he's so fascinating. He was illiterate. He grew up basically like kind of like a wild link, if anything, and uh, uh, pretty much destitute throughout most of his life, uh, acting as a acting as a mercenary, serving one Khan or another. So seeking uh, patronage from one hand or another throughout his life. And yet, despite all that, he was intelligent enough. He had this kind of... Uh, uh, Conan the Barbarian is <laughs> frequently described as having this sort of low animal cunning. And uh, Chinggis Khan is pretty much an example of that. As much as I despise the usual stereotypes around Genghis Khan, that one was correct. I mean, if if anything, it's even more impressive that he was was so cunning and he was so intelligent that despite having next to no formal education in any way, shape or form, he was intelligent enough to recognize the importance of political institutions and uh, governments and uh, judicial systems and all that stuff. To, to understood the, uh, its importance enough that he 
essentially founded an empire based on those principles. And it was an incredibly successful empire at that. Which is why the Mongol Empire was pretty much the culmination of hundreds of years, of hundreds, uh, even thousands of years of nomadic empires forming and then dissolving. It's a cycle. Starting even with the the Xiongnu, from which the Huns, uh, the Huns can be traced back to the Xiongnu, and the Xiongnu themselves can be traced back to the primordial ancient humans that have populated the Eurasian steppe. I mean, like two or three kilometers from where I live, I can walk to that site, and at that site, there is an archaeological site that uh, where there's been uh, where they found an ancient uh, Shannu city. It I think it dates back about two, maybe three thousand years, give or take. So people lived here. For thousands of years, and uh, <laughs> what uh, perplexes me, what particularly perplexes me and annoys me to no end, and maybe even angers me, is that uh, local Buret Mongolians have forgotten their heritage so so badly that uh, many of them, many of us, are actually convinced that uh, there was no civilization here at all before the Russians came. That's how badly our history has been mangled, to the point where Buret, Mongol, uh, Buret Mongols consider themselves as this uh, a distinct ethnicity from the Hoche Mongols, when in fact the Buret Mongols have been one of the core Mongolic peoples for thousands of years, and uh, have been such during the years when uh, Chinggis Khan founded his empire. Many Buret Mongols served in the imperial army and uh, went to places such as Baghdad and uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or southern China even or Korea. And uh, (laughs) my people have forgotten all that. That's enough about sad stuff. Uh, I hope I've uh, given a, a pretty comprehensive uh, uh, look into Mongolian wrestling, because uh, it it's, uh, may come across as a bit rambly, but Mongolian wrestling is inextricably tied to m- m- Mongol history itself. So if I ever get the chance to maybe make a history episode about uh, maybe Mongolian history itself, <laughs> under the premise of uh, talking about Mongolian wrestling, I would be right happy to, to quote, <laughs> to quote Steve Rambo. <laughs> Fucking hell, we're at the forty-minute mark already. Uh, right, I'm gonna take a short break, have a tea refill, maybe bit, maybe have a smoke, and then I'm going to come back and answer. At least try and answer at least one more question about as in-depth as I've answered this question. And then we'll see if I have enough energy left to answer... Well, there's a lot of questions. That's the questions. That's... Jesus. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 questions. And each of them may warrant its own episode. I mean, 
Uh, I'm glad that our patrons are interested in such uh, deep <laughs> and expansive topics, such deep and complex topics. So, I mean, if uh, if that's not the reason to join our Discord, then I don't know what is. I mean, uh, you're pretty much guaranteed to find uh, a fascinating, fascinating conversation partner in there. So, yeah, right. Uh, tea refill, short break, and then I'm going to get back to you. You're going. You're not going to notice the break. I'm going to edit it out. In fact, I'm just going to pause the recording and just go away. <laughs> I don't know why I made such a such a big deal out of it. I mean, it's natural. All right. One huge bowl of soup, and I'm back. <laughs> uh, I'm recording this uh, during uh, early morning. It's currently 9 a.m. for me. So, uh haven't had breakfast, so figured I might as well, might as well fill up, uh, refuel. All right, uh, where was I? The next question is uh, from uh, Tough Tryout Page Set to Ram Range. Is it better to sink in the cum or come in the sink? Well, that depends entirely on what, on what sort of industrial situation your region has, uh, what sort of uh, institutions it has set up, you know, the incentives and all. As you know, some regions have uh, a more established cum supply situation, cum purification situation, and so uh, cum is more readily available and is thus uh, f much cheaper than in some other regions. For example, if you look at uh, at a place like the UK, with uh, they often have two different faucets: one for uh, cold cum and the other is for hot cum. And the idea is that you mix the gum together in a in the sink and then and then use it. <clears throat> and uh, in some other countries, it's considered uh, it's not considered wasteful to fill entire baths with cum, and so you can just kind of plop in and uh, splash around and enjoy all the benefits of having an enormous supply of cum. Really, the countries that uh, have this sort of uh, cum situation, really, they have cum privilege and uh, they, they are in no position whatsoever to make fun of people who do not have access to enough cum to be able to sink in it as opposed to coming in the sink. Sometimes you, you just have to acquire come through natural means and in fact the mass industrialization of cum production has been incredibly uh, harmful to the environment so really uh, find your local cum producer find your ethical uh, uh, environmentally friendly cum producer and then try to acquire cum from from that person especially if that person uh, maintains a healthy diet and uh, doesn't use uh, the various uh, enhancers, uh, cum, and, cum production enhancers that lead to, uh, quite frankly, uh, way more synthetic, uh, way more synthetic tasting cum that uh, reeks slightly of plastic as opposed to, uh, as opposed to what cum actually smells like. 
All right. I hope that was comprehensive enough. Uh, a tough tape, tough trial tape set to Ram Ranch. Uh, I think that was a satisfactory answer. I certainly hope so. So moving on to our third question from my patron, Evan Lee, uh, which uh, is another question that warrants its own episode, much like the come question. Mm, it uh, has to do with cross-disciplinary learning. Originally, uh, it's, I mean, it's also, it also could be its own podcast episode, as, as I've already said, and uh, I am going to get around to that maybe at some point in the future. But uh, the question is, well, not question, the, su the original suggestion was uh, thus. I would quite enjoy a podcast on how learning fight analysis has helped you in understanding other subjects or vice versa. I found it quite helpful in learning things to take ideas you've learned from one field and see how it applies to another. Leonardo da Vinci, for example, was uh, the first person to be able to figure out how blood flowed in and out of the heart, and he did so by drawing analogies between that and how water flowed in a river. Second person to figure that one out came 200 years later. And that's the only example of cross-disciplinary thinking that I can think at the top of my head. There are no doubt many, many examples of this in the world, and especially during the Italian Renaissance, and many even just from Leonardo alone. I've also found it quite helpful whenever I'm thinking about how to do X thing to ask myself how does anyone do X thing in another subject. For instance, if you're trying to figure out how to punch faster, you can ask yourself how people drive faster in F1. They strip away any excess weight. That gives you something to work with. Gotta lose fat. How do people type fast on the keyboard? You position your fingers and hands properly to minimize the distance between keys. That gives you something as well. Got to have a good stance and good positioning. Uh, <clears throat> so, <laughs> to clarify, he's not talking about weight loss when he says you have to lose fat. He means you have to have as much... Uh, uh, you have to make the movement... Uh, the movement of of the punch as efficient as possible to strip away any excess movements, like things like wind ups, things like uh, oh, well, things like that. Um, proper stance and good positioning. Naturally, if you have a good stance and you maintain proper foot positioning, you're never going to be off balance, and as such, you're never going to uh, uh, you you lower your chances of uh, performing energy inefficient strikes and to prevent energy loss if you miss. That's why it's all important to have uh, proper biomechanics on your punches and your strikes. Anyway, uh, cross-disciplinary cross-disciplinary learning. Alright. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my personal experience uh, when I started uh, learning about combat sports, when you learn about fighters, and fighters' biographies and their history, you cannot help but learn about the context in which they grew up, the context of the era during which they grew up, the context uh, of the region in which they grew up. So what, uh, what that means, the language they speak, the culture they grew up in, the history of the culture, that uh, the uh, extraneous circumstances such as... Uh, geopolitical neighbors that dictated the course of the history of that region and the development of its culture and so you, you kind of 
it's an organic process of uh, crossing over to different disciplines to learn about the discipline you want to learn about in the first place. So uh, if you want to learn why uh, a fighter from, say, uh, Nicaragua was the way he was, why why he made the decisions he did after his career. I'm talking, uh, of course, about Alexis Arguello. Uh, He participated in the Nicaraguan Civil War, and so if you wish to understand his motivations better, and if you wish to to avoid misinterpreting his uh, life decisions, you must learn the background. You must learn his background, you must understand why he took uh, that side in, during that year in the Civil War, why he uh, why he circled back around to supporting the Sardinista government, for example, and uh, things like that. And so naturally, uh, you, can't, you kind of cannot help but learn about all these things. And um, personally, I've been very lucky to kind of stumble upon linguistics as my primary field during my university days. And so uh, while I haven't finished my studies, I I actually quit university because due to various personal reasons, uh, linguistics is a a type of field that kind of naturally crosses over into many of these things, many of the things that I've just described, geopolitics, history, uh, regional studies, cultural studies, anthropology, even neuroscience to some extent. And uh, the neuroscience example is particularly interesting because the more I learned about neuroscience while learning about how languages work, it kind of gave me an insight into how uh, heuristics work as well, the various biases, the various learning processes that uh, dictate how we develop our knowledge, how we acquire our knowledge, how we contextualize that knowledge and how we internalize it. And the various prisms of perception that humans suffer from from time to time when uh, in the process of learning. Things like the co- things like cognitive biases, things things like um, heuristic tricks, heuristic shortcuts that allow for quicker learning at the expense of uh, I suppose, at the expense of shallower understanding of the topic, uh, that's really that's not really quite uh, quite the correct term, but that's kind of how it works in general. Um, the various cognitive biases that you have are naturally going to warp your perception of the facts that you um, that you memorize, that you internalize. And uh, the, the difference between internalization and, and simply learning effect. Because learning and understanding are different things, as uh, we, uh, me and Dan have stated, and me, Dan, Hax, uh, whoever else at the fight I have stated many times before. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, the thing about neuroscience, what got me into it in the first place, is that during our phonetics uh, lectures, We've been shown uh, various slides of x-rays of people saying ostensibly the same vowels and ostensibly the same sounds. Uh, And every single time, depending on the nationality, depending on the ethnicity, depending on the language the person grew up speaking, 
the position of their mouth and their mus facial muscles and their tongue and the flexion and the vocal cords was different, even though the sound was uh, supposed to be the same. And so naturally, due to that anatomical composition, the anatomical position of the of all that of that complex of all those organs, basically, uh, the sound came out sounding differently. And why is that? Well, that's muscle memory. And what is muscle memory? Where does it come from? It comes from the neural pathways that your uh, brain matter gets, uh, uh, gets uh, I guess, cut through with over the course of performing. If you perform the same action over and over again, you're going to develop more white uh, neuron cells that, that are going to dictate the way your body moves from then on. And so that kind of got me interested in, I guess, brain science in general, and it kind of spiraled from there. And also, during some of our lectures, we touched upon uh, how uh, the very the actual cognitive process of learning a language works. And so th that was a, a huge part of that. And then, when I started learning about combat sports, and I started, I started learning about uh, muscle memory when it comes to biomechanics and performing certain functions, certain actions, about actually the the act of well, the act of learning how to fight essentially, because at the highest level, and generally in a fight, uh, in a fight, you you want to think as little as possible about what you are doing. You want your actions to be instinctual. That's why, uh, that's why, despite many fighters being uh, "quote unquote" rote, uh, it's also extremely helpful to them in many situations because uh, being rote, while it does make you way more predictable than just kind of uh, taking the fight uh, as it. Like just taking what your opponent gives you, it also prevents you from thinking too hard, and it just makes you just uh, just a touch more quicker, uh, just a touch quicker, and so, uh, and the really advanced fighters exhibit this quality of being extremely instinctual, but at the same time they're able to process, they're able to actually process what is happening in exchanges and adapt to these second to second, split second split-second changes in momentum within those exchanges. That's a sign of a really advanced fighter. Because, uh, first of all, it's a result of hundreds of, of thousands of hours of repetition. Uh, actual, well, actual intellectual acumen. It's a, it's a skill you develop. And so, as a result, thinking about all that, I've just kind of stumbled upon a realization that everything is a skill. Not just the individual motions that you perform, but also how you process information. How you view the, view the world and yourself. Your perception of self, your ability to perceive yourself, your emotional intelligence is also a skill. You can, you can develop essentially anything. Anything you, you think about as being something that just uh, something that just happens is in fact a process you may uh, enforce your own control over by consciously trying to uh, 
develop yourself in a certain direction when it comes to, say, a psychological attribute you have. For example, uh, as we talked about on this toughness panel with Zach Mikowski, uh mental fortitude. Even if your physical durability isn't that high from the start, you can still make yourself more durable. You cannot become durable, but you can't, can make yourself more able to withstand the various physical and mental stressors that uh, come with uh, training combat sports or any type of uh, physically strenuous activity. The same goes to mentally strenuous activity, for example, extremely stressful work environment. Or, uh, I mean, this may be a bit controversial, but I think it also works with your mental health as well. Because uh, those who know me, uh, those those who know me know that I have struggled with suicidal depression for a long time, and uh, Russian healthcare being what it is, Russian mental healthcare, healthcare is practically non-existent. Uh, if you visit a, a, a psychiatrist in Russia, all he's going to tell you is that, uh, oh, just find a wife, uh, settle with a family, and you, basically you're all sorted. Or if a woman visits a psychiatrist, she's going to be told something like, I don't know, find a husband. So really, it's kind of, uh, mental health care is kind of dire in Russia. And so I've had to develop my own personal coping mechanisms on my own without uh, uh, involving medication, because getting medication means going to a psychiatrist and being put on a list. Because actually effective mental mental. Uh, health medication is considered a controlled substance in Russia. And so going by that example, I sort of kind of, I sort of attempted to develop my own heuristics, develop my own heuristic processes that I use to process information and process my own emotional states. Basically, I was forced to develop my emotional intelligence in order to avoid myself from falling into the traps that uh, into the mental traps that uh, are intrinsic to depression as a as a mental affliction. So uh, that's uh, that's one example of how you can do it. So uh, well, I guess to give a to give a more concrete example, every time I wake up, uh, if I am feeling under the weather and I cannot perform uh, what I usually am able to perform from day to day, for example, like working out or um, working on my articles. I just find something to distract myself with, some sort of activity, even if it's just passive activity, even if it's just passively listening to various lectures, to various podcasts, or maybe even um, uh, video game reviews. I try to uh, engage as as, uh, closely as possible as uh, as actively as possible with the material I'm studying, uh, to, in order to, well, try to develop, uh, to try and uh, uh, distract myself from the destructive thoughts that I may ha- may have, and actually learn something new, or maybe recontextualize my previous the previous knowledge that I've already ha- that I already have on the topic, and so that way I do not lose this uh, feeling that I keep moving forward from day to day. Because the main danger with uh, mental... Well, well, with the feeling 
feeling depressed and feeling st uh, like you're stagnating is that well that, that that's the feeling that's the danger the feeling that you are stagnating and you need to keep keep your own mental momentum moving you need to keep yourself uh feeling you need to maintain that feeling of the fact that uh you're developing from day to day you are not actually regressing even if in practice you're not doing much if you frame it in your own head as some kind of progress then that prevents you at least for me then that that prevents me from falling into this usual destructive trail of thought i'm worthless i'm not doing anything because i'm worthless and because i'm not doing anything i'm even more worthless no because i am actively engaging with various material online even if it's just for leisure i'm still learning something new i'm still developing as a person i'm still acquiring some uh new traits new um uh, i'm growing as a person essentially that's the general that's the usual mental trick i employ uh it may not work for anybody but it uh, works for me so that's one example another example is how frequently people another example of heuristics uh of uh in the sense that you keep yourself trick your brain into thinking that you continue developing uh you're you're performing productive uh, performing productive productive actions is uh well exercise <laughs> the problem with exercise well uh it's i'm not saying that your exercise will cure your depression i'm saying that i'm trying to provide an example of a heuristic trick and that uh, a lot of people kind of drop off when they try to get more fit uh in the sense that people will uh due to various circumstances people are very bad at consistently at developing a habit of consistently working out and so even if you are not in the mood to work out even then all you need to do or at least that's what i do is to perform some kind of manual labor or perform a, a very simple uh non-mentally taxing workout or even take a walk and then you're still working on your own fitness without without having without uh, having a workout that lasts for i don't know four four hours and even then that type of workout is usually unnecessary for for your average person all you need to do is just kind of 30 minutes every day and that's it and so if you trick yourself into thinking that you in that into thinking that you'll keep yourself in shape you may actually get to uh to the mental headspace where you consider yourself uh a person that is able to perform uh actions that uh, have been previously too difficult for you and then you actually start working out for real uh i don't know if i'm conveying it in a in a understandable form i'm i understand that i'm probably sounding like some kind of cook <laughs> I'm just trying to explain my inner mental processes and it's very hard to do. I've never tried to actually do that. Uh, so I know how that may sound from the outside for, to the outside listener, to the outside observer. So uh, back to cross-disciplinary learning. <laughs> uh, I've spent uh, way too much time talking about a very abstract, a very abstract concept that... Uh, 
is very difficult to explain using uh if you hadn't noticed my spoken English is actually way worse than my written English. That's why I'm always kind of insecure when it comes to public speaking, even though uh I would consider myself decent at it. I'm certainly way better at it in in Russian as opposed to English because it's like obviously it's not my native language. Anyway, <laughs> uh I think I've made uh, my point fairly clear in that uh trying to become a fight analyst and uh, in the process of learning about combat sports about the history of combat sports and about the biography of individual athletes that uh, i kind of organically crossed over into learning about the uh context behind why they were the way they were as a per as people and that and that involved learning about the history of the region they originated in and so while you learn about the history of the region and while you are learning about combat sports as a phenomenon you cannot help but learn about uh humanity essentially as a whole uh and that includes uh very very concrete human problems examined for example by the by the field of uh economics in that um uh the problem of incentives the problem of why humans behave the way they do why humans do the things they do the way they do it because going back to cognitive biases and uh, heuristics people aren't rational people are not rational beings at all uh what people are generally good at and that's why the human brain is um such a quick machine such a quick computing machine is is because of those cognitive biases they and uh, heuristics they make us what we are humans are really good at optimizing for what they believe are the problems they need solving and so um uh to go back to the economics example because of that markets which allow uh, markets allow for more efficient allocation allocation of societal resources than anything else we have uh there may be a better way to optimize the human society in, in order to progress as a hum, as a species but for now that's the best we have and so when the above two things do not produce the most socially optimal outcome it is generally because of uh, uh of reasons that make a great deal of sense and not because people are simply stu- stupid like uh because of the w- the way humans are wired uh it may s- seem at first glance that we are p- we are kind of dumb as a species when in fact we are simply reacting to outside uh factors that surround us depressed people are not weak because uh they constantly feel under the weather and cannot perform and cannot function in society to their fullest potential poor people are not poor because they are dumb and cannot find better ways to earn money uh healthcare is hard because of hidden information and moral hazard problems uh your average person simply does not possess the same amount of knowledge a medical professional does medical professional does that's the moral hazard behind uh, uh most healthcare systems labor markets are hard because of signaling how do you, how do you quickly show what you know and what you don't know 
training, how do you know what you learn is relevant, organization, power imbalances, which generally favor employers because of transfers slash switch costs, costs uh, transport, etc. Education is hard because it's the society who generally chooses the educational goals, not the person who enjoys the benefit of education, at least to a, up to a certain point. Even young adults aren't in full maturity and thus objectively, biologically and chemically unable to take an adult position, quote-unquote, on education choices. I mean, how many young adults do you know who consistently make uh, poor life decisions? That's because they are simply not adults per se. They haven't matured yet. And so, naturally, uh, people like that, young adults, including me, uh, kind of, by default, cannot make fully informed rational decisions. Uh, even if you... Purely in the, even if you don't subscribe to the biological uh, uh, hypotheses or theory or whatever, and it's uh, it's mostly a result of of age. We simply do not possess enough experience. We do not possess possess enough data. We do not have a uh, solid enough enough a solid enough framework of information from which to uh, derive our uh, models of behavior, future models of behavior. Uh, so really, it's not really about um, humans being dumb or irrational or selfish. It's more about how does a person who doesn't study to be a doctor understand the complexities of their own health as well as somebody who spent a lifetime studying it? The opportunity cost which creates this problem is not an economic problem. It's, a, it's just literal laws of reality reflected, reflected in how humans operate. Uh it's a problem of laws of reality reflected in how humans operate so for example i do not understand the human body as well as a doctor i do not understand neuroscience as well as a neuroscientist even if uh, even if i was Im even if i were immortal those people would still still have a huge head start <laughs> and so cross disciplinary learning and uh, all types of learning circle back to the uh, to the idea of uh, how do you how well do you understand human nature in the first place? And I know it's an incredibly complex uh, thing to understand, and no one may even fully, no one ever may fully understand it. And I do not claim to understand it at all. It's just this, the, the sort of direction I wish to develop myself in. And so, uh, in order... Because I w wish to understand human nature, it's, it's uh, kind of inevitable that I started branching out in these, uh, in these different fields. In order to... Uh, in order to... The, in order to increase my ability in order to deepen my own knowledge about the field, in the field, within the field that I actually wish to work in. Because I've said this many times before in uh, many different uh, publications I've, d I've done for the fight site and, and the articles I've done for the fight site and in podcasts, fighting is a microcosm of the human condition. It's the highest highs and the lowest lows. It's depressing, tragic, inspiring, incredibly powerful, incredibly amoral, and yet 
a lot of the time when you watch a really great fight, uh, I mean, I cannot find a better example of human nature encapsulated within as concise a form as possible as a truly great fight between truly great generational talents, all-time great competitors, shaving years of each other's lifespan, putting their, uh, their health and their chance at a long, happy, fulfilling life out there for our entertainment, for all to see, because they wish to prove to themselves and to the world at large that, God damn it, they are the best at it. They are, they are the best at what they do. Fuck what everyone else thinks. We do not care if it is barbaric. We are fighters. That's what we do. And so, it's kind of like, fighters live the type of life that uh, is essentially the human experience squared. Learning, progressing, achieving things, overcoming adversity, working with limitations. It's all that and so much more encapsulated in such a concise format of a 36-minute fight, of 25-minute fight, a 15-minute fight. Doesn't matter. And so, in order to understand these people, in order to truly give them justice, how can you not dedicate your entire being to understand to 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 the idea of understanding human nature and so in order to understand human nature it's it's just it's essentially a prerequisite to 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 be well versed in all these things uh i mean i would not uh I think I would not allow myself to be uh, to call myself a fight analyst, a fight historian, a fight fan if I did none of these things, if I didn't try to understand the uh, context behind the way combat sports function, the way fight organizations function, the economics behind the whole thing, the history behind the whole thing, or the whole thing, the linguistic and historical and sociocultural context behind the history that these fighters have. I'm not the one fighting out there. I'm not the one putting my health on the line. I have the privilege of being able to dedicate my time to developing my knowledge about topics uh, fighters do not have time to develop. And so uh, that way I may sit down and record what they are doing in there and give it context and place it uh, and find a place for the their careers in the grand scheme of things uh, in in basically in what is basically human history because what you put out there on the internet uh, i mean you may make fun of me all all you want for placing such stock in the idea of writing articles about two guys punching each other in the face on the internet and then getting really mad at it on Twitter and writing jokes about it and all. But what you put on the internet is basically forever. It's going to be there. It's now part... Whatever you put out now on the internet is now part of the human... of the collective human history. That's our archives out... out right there. That's That's... That's the archives of humanity right there. 
even if it's embarrassing, even if it's cringy, even if even if it's just plain dumb and <laughs> and that's unsightly and uh, however stupid it is, it's still us. That's us. If I didn't start writing about combat sports, if I didn't start learning about combat sports, I would not be able to have this frame of knowledge, this framework of knowledge, uh, in which. Uh, I I wouldn't have as complete of a world picture as I have right now. Used to be I I was always pretty good at remembering remembering facts, trivia, like fun factoids and all that stuff. And uh, my knowledge is pretty encyclopedic uh, in many respects. But I did not have a, a framework within to, within which I could draw my own conclusions and work inside of uh, and work inside of it um, I did not have competency to to be able to use uh, to be able to use that knowledge in order to uh, analyze things I see in order to internalize the things I see the things I learn once again knowing and understanding are two different things very different things and uh, when I started learning about combat sports, when I started uh, writing about it, I've I've been able to, well, to develop that ability to understand what sort of knowledge I have, to understand the information I possess. Because you cannot talk about MMA fighters without bringing up the question of fighters' pay in MMA. You cannot talk about fighters' pay in MMA without understanding how labor markets work. I cannot uh, talk about labor markets in MMA without understanding how corporations work. You cannot understand how corporations work without understanding the without understanding the broader economical concept that are at play here. You cannot talk about individual fighter personalities without understanding the history of the region they come from. You cannot understand how they think without knowing what sort of language they speak what sort of history the language has and what sort of interactions it had his historically with its geopolitical neighbors and they very and you can't talk about the geopolitical neighbors without understanding geopolitics and what is at play here and you cannot talk about geopolit geopolitics without understanding first uh, without understanding how how rulers think how politics works in general and that is those are all problems that uh, those are all things that uh, circle back to go back as uh, well as far as uh, the human race has existed basically for, for what is it like two million years and you cannot understand how humans themselves work without understanding how a planet works and so it's all it's a circle <laughs> It's a circle of life. It's all connected. Uh, people talk about how you cannot really visualize math, that it's too abstract, that it's so hard to learn because it's so abstract and you cannot picture math in your own head. In your head and uh, you absolutely can. It's just taught really badly at school. The easiest way to understand math, for example, is to start studying physics. Because a lot of shapes that are presented in physics are representations, are physical representations of of abstract math, and the shapes that uh, physical 
the, the, the shapes the various phenomena in physics uh, take, they're hugely dependent on what sort of math goes be into, goes, goes behind that shape, goes into determining what sort of shape that physical object takes. The same with, uh, the same with chemistry. Chemistry is also uh, a big part of that. And so natural sciences obviously are also interconnected the same way uh, the same way humanities are connected. The social sciences are connected, linguistic sciences. So really, cross-discipline learning is just it's not really cross-discipline learning, it's just learning. The chemical interactions in various objects are dictated by not only just not only just chemistry but also physics at their uh, their smallest level at the lowest level because uh, chemists uh, chemistry researchers do not concern themselves with the with the atom it's a field of physics and a lot of chemical reactions are also dictated by the the physical interactions that uh, happen at the at the lowest level at the most um, at the most elementary level of part at, uh, at the level of elemental particles all of that is visualized, can be broken down by using math. And in a sense, math itself is uh, its a language. It's the language of science. And so, if you have some sort of a linguistic background, you can apply your own linguistic knowledge to break down how math functions with, uh, with little to no problem. So really... It's all about reasoning. Uh, developing a process of reasoning uh, it will allow you to essentially uh, set out to do whatever you want, including mold your own psyche in order to better withstand the various mental pressures and stressors that you may uh, stumble upon during the course of your life, even if you've never experienced anything traumatic in your life before. That's why on the Toughness podcast I've said that it's not a prerequisite to be to come from a shitty background to live in a shithole in order to be tough. It's something that you can teach yourself and others with enough with a with a proper process. With the proper with the proper uh, process, everything becomes a skill. And to go back to my rem remarks about uh, the political uh, turmoil experienced by the Mongolian region. If you develop yourself into a person that has a rock-solid reasoning process, that understands all these processes that happen in the world that surrounds us, uh, you essentially make yourself uh, uncontrollable by your own government and by the media. Uh, uh, and by extension the media as well especially state-controlled media that's why education and self-education and educated people are generally so so uh, feared and considered to be an undesirable class in many kleptocratic societies many kleptocratic polities for example Russia but that's a topic for another day. Uh, I think I've uh, I've gone into enough detail uh, regarding that uh, regarding that particular topic. Uh, 
uh, that particular question. Uh, I was planning on making it uh, at, at least a two-parter, but I'm now realizing that a lot of the questions require way more involved answers than I previously anticipated. So I think I think we're going to uh, I think I'm going to wrap this one up and then uh, get into answering the rest of the questions uh, during the during the course of the week. So these are going to be uh, published over the course of the week, uh, however many there will be. So <laughs> consider this a treat. <laughs> Uh, and naturally, thanks to all the Discord pa patrons that have provided the que their questions and that uh, suggested that uh, the the topics that I'm going to be discussing on these podcasts, they're all fascinating, incredibly complex, incredibly deep uh, topics, themes, questions. And if this isn't uh, the premier reason to join our Discord, then I do not know what is. Just sign up right now. Do not be shy. Hop in. We're all psychos there. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, constant shit posting about fights, constant jokes, constant uh, riffing on the the various dumber currencies in MMA that just uh, uh, just that are just dumb a dime a dozen in combat sports, boxing included, kickboxing as well. We have a uh, grappling channel. We have a kickboxing channel. Uh, Muay Thai channel. Uh, we, we 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 do it all. We cover it all. We talk about everything. And there's also, of course, the Tengri Dome channel where you can uh, where you can suggest a, a podcast topic of your own or ask me a question. And I will do my best to give as much of a satisfactory answer as possible. Which I think was, which I think is made pretty evident by the way I handled this podcast. Uh, I think uh, I think it's going to make going to make for a good listen. At least I hope so. Yeah, uh, check out our Patreon for our exclusive content. Once again, things like uh, alternate commentary tracks, uh, exclusive uh, fight breakdowns, technique breakdowns, resume evaluations, the uh, robbery review series. And uh, also, we started publishing our top five series of uh, our ser top five series of the best fights ever in MMA, in our opinion. Uh, there's going to be articles already. Several articles are out. Uh, one on Gagey versus Alvarez. The other one is on uh, uh, Lola versus Hendricks. Alternate commentary tracks are available for those as well. Those two as well. All you need to do is to go to our Patreon and uh, subscribe for three dollars, or uh, I would highly recommend, I would highly suggest you, I would strongly suggest you register for the five dollar tier, so you can uh, interact with the rest of our staff in the Discord and uh, talk to me if you want to talk. I'm always in the Discord, always available. I'm very active there. Planning on maybe starting a stream. Someday, I don't know. Not sure what I will stream yet, but uh, maybe it will be a live Q&A session while I'm playing something like... Something uh, 
I don't know, maybe like a 4x, 4x RTS, 4x RTS game or something like that. Something that doesn't, that wouldn't require too much attention from me. I also host the Combat Sports News Recap on uh, the Fightside Presents channel, uh, where I uh, review, where I recap the events that took place during the weekend and review the various news that have been that have piled up during the week. And uh, <laughs> uh, if you want a good laugh, then uh, watch the video version. Me and Fenio put a lot of effort into visual gags, uh, so. Uh, if you want to look at snarky captions and me gradually going insane over the course of a recording, then uh, go check that one out. And yeah, uh, I guess that's enough of that. Stay tuned for the follow-up mailbag episode where I'd uh, cover cover the, the rest of the very interesting topics that I've been uh, suggested by the, the Discord patrons. I guess I should uh, make it a little bit of a preview for the questions that I'm going to be answering in the next episode. Uh, so, uh, today I've answered the questions on Mongolian wrestling and history and on cross-discipline learning. And next one is going to be fighting style and personality, correlation slash causation, training to fight against type. Uh, so... This is a question from Smash, S-M-E-S-H, the way Habib says it, Smash. <laughs> I'm gonna smash your boy! Uh, Alright, the question is, how much does a person's personality affect their fighting style, and are there any clear examples of someone fighting entirely against who they are? You guys touched on it on the panels, but I'd love to see a more in-depth look. I'd love to hear a more in-depth look. All right, that's uh, that one is going to be very interesting. I'm already the the gears have already started turning in my head. Uh, then the next uh, question was, uh, uh, "Sunshine Sparkle, Sunshine Sparkle, sixty nine, why are fight fans so obsessed with this prelapsarian ideal of the humble warrior and the true martial artist?" Oh, look who's using. $20 words. <laughs> uh, uh, certainly one I have very strong feelings about. Also, Rafael Tresanjos. Rafael <laughs> Tresanjos asks, why does uh, China not do particularly, particularly well in MMA? Supposedly, they have been doing structured martial arts for 4,000 years. That is correct. They have a huge population and the governmental and public resources to, to do so. Is it just a matter of time until China is the new Dagestan? Uh, that's a very complex topic. One that has to do with political institutions and Chinese history and culture as well. So that one is going to take a long ass time to get to chew my way through. But I, I mean, that's why I'm here. That's why it's all so interesting. That's why I, I like my job so much. I think that, uh, that's just about the extent of what I'm going to be able to cover on the next episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'm definitely looking forward to answering all those questions. Uh, certainly, They certainly get your noggin jogging. All right. Uh, this has been Tegnery Dome episode 11. Uh... And I'll see you later. Dachin also trabajerte.